word to help turn us inside out. It's a word, I feel, to help equip the whole body of Christ. You see, the problem is, quite often when we're training, when we're equipping, when we're speaking, we often have a context of the local church, which is absolutely right. We often have a context of us together, which is absolutely right. We often have a context of, we want to see you grow in leadership, in gifting in the local church, which is absolutely right. But if we're not careful, what you can hear subliminally is that really the pinnacle of Christian success, the pinnacle of Christian leadership, the pinnacle of obeying God, the pinnacle of it all, if you really are going on with God, you might one day lead a small group. If you're really gifted. And then, you know, if you really are gifted, if you really got potential, if you really are committed into the local church, we might get you overseeing something or a couple of groups or a couple of departments or something. And then if you're really gifted, if you're really, you might get on some secret group that meets every now and again that Anne and I come over and speak to, and, but I'm told not to mention that. <laughs> or if you're really gifted, if you're really called, if you're really special, you might one day be an elder in the church. Oh, but that's only for half of you anyway. Now, the reality is this. Every one of us is called of God. Every one of us is gifted. And God wants to equip. He does want to equip more elders here. Please don't think that was a dig at eldership. I love eldership. I want to see more elders here. I want to see more elders arise in every one of the churches that we're serving. But actually, I believe that all of us are called to make an influence. All of us are called to leadership and are called to shine for Jesus wherever he's called us. For some of us, that's going to be primarily our leadership is going to be worked out in the local church. But for many of us, the leadership and calling and influence that God has given us is going to be worked out at the school gate. It's going to be worked out at... Over your coffee table. It's going to be worked out in the boardroom. It's going to be worked out in the classroom. It's going to be worked out and worked out in life. And that's the message that I believe God wants me to bring to you this morning. I submitted this to your elders earlier the week. I said, I'm sensing this. God's speaking to me about this. Interestingly, I also met uh, this week with uh, a leader of one of the other movements, not in New Frontiers, but uh, one of the other movements, Salt and Light Movement. And I, he said, what's God been saying to you? And I said, this message. And he said, that's exactly what God's been saying to us as well. So it's kind of encouraging that we're lining up with some of the things God's saying. It's fantastic to build local churches. I'm committed to the local church. I love the local church. I love community. I love what we're doing. But the local church itself isn't the end. The end is that we fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the local church is the vehicle to get that done. But actually, he wants us to shine out, not just in the Jubilee Center for two hours on a Sunday morning. He wants us to shine in life. He wants us to have influence in life. And he has called you, as a member of this church, to be influential wherever you are. Now, I was brought up as a, I was brought up in an evangelical Christian home. My parents had the privilege of being in a church in London led by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
pause to genuflect. That's the law. In New Frontiers, you have to mention the doctor at least once in a message, and uh, that's my mention. And uh, I really appreciated their evangelical input as a child. In fact, I became a Christian at the age of eight years old. We had a local tent mission. So guys, who's eight here? Who's, who's eight? Anyone eight? I was your age. Anyone younger than eight? Anyone older than eight? <laughs> yeah, right, quite a few. Um, at eight years old, I, uh, in a tent mission in my local town, in my local village, I heard for the first time that I ha- should have made a personal commitment to Jesus and to give my life for him. Now, it's because all that my parents built into me that I was able to hear that, I believe, but God opened my ears and I did hear that. And at the age of eight, I gave my life to Jesus. That's why I'm so passionate, by the way, about things like the North Bible weekend. I'm so passionate about events like that where not only we as adults get to worship the Lord and enjoy his presence and get caught up with his purposes, but you guys, kids, children, get to hear amazing truth. You get to align your lives with Jesus. You get to make responses to Jesus and you get to be filled with his spirit because that was the missing ingredient in my life. It wasn't until another eight years later when I was 16 years old when I joined one of these weird churches that was associated with a weird guy called Terry Virgo when I even heard that there was a Holy Spirit available for today. I thought the Holy Spirit was all about the book of Acts. Obviously he is, but I didn't realize that he was available for today to fill us and empower us for life. And at the age of 16, when I walked into a church not dissimilar to this, other than it was very small, 30 people, I encountered the Holy Spirit. I got baptized in water as a response to hearing the message, and I actually got filled with the Holy Spirit. And it changed my whole world view. It changed everything for me. Because I suddenly saw that being a Christian wasn't about going to a small church in a small village and doing something for a couple of hours or actually one hour in those days on a Sunday morning. But actually God reigns over all of life. And I suddenly came into something where I saw the big picture. I saw the magnitude of the gospel. I saw the magnitude of what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You see, Jesus said to them, wait, wait in Jerusalem, and then something's going to happen to you. You're going to receive the gift my Father has promised. You will be empowered with the Spirit, and he will fill you with power, and you will be my witnesses because of that. Jerusalem, where you live, Judea, the county, Samaria, those people next door that we don't really like too much, but God wants to give us a heart for, and actually the ends of the earth. In other words, once you are filled, empowered with the Holy Spirit, he wants you to take the message of Jesus everywhere and anywhere that you go. Now, I soon found out as a 16-year-old lad that my worldview was radically different to those that I was in college with. And when I was studying my A-levels, I found out pretty soon that my English and philosophy teachers didn't share my view that God was great. In fact, they didn't have a view of God at all other than he was a Victorian hangover. My biology and physics and chemistry teachers didn't have a view that God was in control and God had made all things and was reshaping all things and one day all things would be glorified in him. They didn't have a view of that at all. They thought that God was non-existent, that this world was just down to chance and luck. 
And I didn't appreciate the implications at the time, but those guys that I was at school with, I was at college with some 30, 40 years ago, these guys have now helped shape the world that we're in. Not particularly those that I was in college with. I wasn't a particularly bright or successful college, but my generation, our generation, has now shaped the world. So that those in teaching are creating the education policy. Those are creating finance policy in industry, in banking, in insurance. Those in local government, those in national government, those in the legal profession with the police or the lawyers or the judges, those who are marketing and advertising or in entertainment, those who are in arts and media, journalism and filmmaking, they've created a world without God. They've created a worldview that doesn't see a creating, redeeming, dynamic, restoring God. And that's not good, dear friends, because the Bible's not only true... It's also the best way to live. And we need to see something of redemption in the whole of society, in the whole of life. The danger is, as Christians, we kind of feel that our little patch is getting redeemed, that our little bit is being restored, that restoration speaks about something in the church. And absolutely right it does. As Ginny was prophesying, this is not undermining our foundations. This is not saying there's a new foundation. No, this is saying what is an apostolic foundation? Actually, the glory of God should fill the church, but it shouldn't stay there. That actually, if we're fully filled with the glory of the Lord, if he comes amongst us and fills us and empowers us, then actually we should be sent out from here into life, empowered, filled with the Spirit, making a radical difference and and seeing all things restored. Now, dear friends, one day all things will be restored. But we have the incredible privilege ahead of time to declare prophetically that God is restoring all things. Let's just remind ourselves, if you've got a Bible, that's a good thing. If you've got it physically, that's good. If it's electronically, that's fine. But why don't you turn with me to the book of Genesis, and we're just going to look at some verses and draw some conclusions from things right at the very beginning of the Bible. The word Genesis means beginnings. It's not a scientific book, but it does describe what happened at the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a book of origins. It's a book that tells us who is in control and who is working out all things. So this is Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 26 and uh, a few verses following into 30. Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning of the Bible, easy to find. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, notice the plurality there, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, 
I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they'll be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Father, we come and we submit to your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left in the dark, but we have revelation in your word and by the Spirit about how we should live, how we should work, how life should be worked out. And we ask you today, Lord, we thank you for all your revelation and all your truth. We ask you today, Lord, keep breathing life into us by the Spirit. Keep breathing revelation into us by the Spirit. Keep speaking to us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe I want to start by saying this. Number one, we are called to bear God's image. It says there, let us make man in our image. That's the plurality of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and let them rule. You see, you really are the pinnacle of creation. Have a look round. Say to the person next to you, you're the pinnacle of creation. We're not just the, say it as if you believe it. (laughs) We're not, we're not just, we're not just the most intelligent animal on the planet. We are made in the very image of God. God has put his image upon us. And that word that the writer, probably Moses of Genesis, uses had a very cultural ring to it. You see, the kings of Egypt and Mesopotamia, at the time when this was written up, would only see that the king had was the of it in the image of God. Only the king bore God's image. But the writer here, probably Moses, the writer of Genesis, says, no, we, all of us, are made in the image of God. We're all called to reign. We're all called to bring God's rule and God's reign into life. In fact, that's what Adam and Eve and mankind was called to do right at the beginning. Express God's rule and reign wherever they go. Go from the garden outwards, expressing God's reign, expressing God's rule, being kings and priests and leaders. Now, of course, as we know, we blew it. Man abdicated his reign. Man decided that he wasn't just going to be a representative of God, that he was going to reign in his own authority. The serpent's temptation was this. You you could be God yourself. You don't have to represent one other. You can be your own king. And of course, that was the sin that man fell deciding to be his own God, deciding to represent himself. And of course, in doing that, we lost everything. And we didn't reign. Sin reigned. Death reigned. This is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For by the trespass of one man, death reigned through one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life Through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, in Christ, there is a total redemption. In Christ, there's total restoration. In Jesus, there's a reversal now of what happened in Genesis where we lost 
the right to reign. And in Christ, those who are in the new creation are now called together to reign with Christ. To bring Jesus' rule, Jesus' reign, not just into my heart, as I was told as an eight-year-old lad, but into all of life. Wherever we go, we're called to bring the kingdom of God, the rule of God, Jesus' reign, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' heart into all of life. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. See, I kind of grew up as a little lad thinking it's all going to be done in heaven. This dreadful world, one day we'll be rescued out of it. But actually, no, we're called to be those who bring God's rule into life, into your office, into your school, into your classroom, into your neighborhood, into that boardroom, wherever you are. And this is not about being employed or unemployed. This is not about being at the top of the tree or at the bottom of the tree. This is about wherever you are, bringing the rule and reign of Jesus Christ into life. Now, do I believe in an over-realized eschatology, you might ask? (laughs) I think that little eight-year-old asked that. Um, No, I don't. An over-realized eschatology is that we're going to have heaven on earth. Now, one day we will have heaven on earth, but that's when Jesus comes back and the new Jerusalem comes The new city comes from heaven to earth and the glory of the Lord will fill all the earth. But Jesus didn't tell us to wait for that. He told us prophetically ahead of time to act as though that is true now. To influence everywhere we go saying your kingdom come. And I don't know where the extent of that will end, but I know this. It's a lot more than we've got now. I know this. Not everyone gets healed in this life. But I know this, I'm going to, we're going to see more healed if we lay hands on them and extend the kingdom. We're not going to see all poverty and social justice changed. But I know this, if we step out and proclaim the good news of God to the poor and we proclaim it in governments and in housing estates, actually we're going to see a whole reversal of that and the kingdom's going to come more than it is now. I don't know that everybody in this life is going to be saved. But I do know this. The more we preach the gospel and proclaim it, people will get saved and will give their lives to Jesus. The kingdom of God will come. It will be extended. So I'm not advocating us sitting and awaiting some heavenly kingdom. I'm advocating us stepping out and ruling and reigning now where we are and seeing a whole lot more of heaven coming to earth. A whole load more of his kingdom come. His will be done. One day. It will all be restored. But right now, we get to see samples, packages, examples of this in life. We're called to bear his image. It means, dear friends, that we need to honour and celebrate the value of life. It's so important that we get hold of this. Campaigning for things like abortion, anti-abortion, things like... uh, being against assisted suicide and euthanasia, they're not just a few things out there that, you know, we might be interested in. No, that should be at the very heart, actually, of who we are, that we value life. Do you know now, there are 200,000 abortions in the UK every year. 
In fact, the most dangerous place for a child to be, statistically right now, is in their mother's womb. Now, we're called to rule and reign in all of life. We're called to declare the value of life. We're called to stand up, I believe, for human rights. That's not just something for a few politicians, although I praise God for the politicians who do stand up for truth. And I would to God there were more politicians who would stand up for truth. And maybe there are some here that need to stand up. But we need to be advocates for those who are asylum seekers, those who are being persecuted, those who are caught in human trafficking and in the sex industry. Not only does the Bible teach us to do these things, I'll let you into a secret. The world's waiting for us to do it as well. The world expects Christians to have a high value of life. The world expects Christians to stand up for truth. Let me quote from an old politician. Some of you might remember Roy Hattersley. Uh, in my one trip to the House of Commons uh, many years ago, some 25, nearly 30 years ago, I opened the door for Roy Hattersley and he went through it. There you go. Um, I'm sure he remembers that. Uh, anyway, Roy Hattersley wrote this recently, a couple of years ago, in the Guardian newspaper. And he says this, listen, he's not a Christian He's an atheist, right? He says that. We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings than we are. So therefore, guys, step up and be who you are. Don't try and be something. Reign in life. Celebrate life. Be those who bear his image, who are called to reign. Secondly, we're called to cultivate the earth. Now, this is not an impassioned plea for gardeners. Although actually it does include looking after the planet. But it says to fill the earth and to subdue it. Now actually, that was the original promise to Adam and Eve, that they should fulfill through procreation, they should, fu- they should fill the earth with image bearers of God. Now of course, Jesus uses similar language when he gathers his disciples together and he says, now go and fill the earth with new image bearers. Go and fill the earth with Christ followers. Go into all nations, all preaching to all creation. It's very similar language, actually, if you study it. The message of the good news of Jesus, calling them to repentance and faith, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I'll be with you as you do that to the ends of the age. We're called to be those who are called to, we're called to be those to fill the earth with image bearers, fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And the picture here in Genesis is of cultivating a garden. The garden didn't cultivate itself. It had to be worked. And where you're living, where you're working, the glory of God doesn't come on its own. It comes through you as you step out in faith, as you have conversations, as you declare God's good news, as you talk and love and share and help and be good news so the kingdom of God comes amongst you, even if you leave the most beautiful garden. Now, when I was on leadership training here, uh, I used to love at lunchtime to go and walk in your botanical gardens just over the road. It's still there, is it? It's still beautiful, yeah? Uh, But it doesn't stay like that on its own. It has to be manicured and maintained and looked after. Now, in the same way that we look after a garden, or don't, as the case may be, God has called us to look after society and look after places where we live. 
It means sometimes we have to get our hands dirty. Gardening isn't a clean occupation. You know, that some of you will be old enough to remember the image of Margot Ledbetter in The Good Life when she comes out to help Tom and Barbara, all dressed up to the nines, all dolled up, and, you know, she's got her, her lovely little high heels on and lovely little, you know, she comes and picks up a little weed, and that's not gardening. You need to get your hands dirty. You need to get right in there, and it m- involves a bit of muck and dirt sometimes. And God has called us to pull out things that shouldn't be there, and to plant things that should be there. That's what you do in a garden. They say a flower... It's just a weed in the right place. (laughs) And a weed is a flower in the wrong place. But we're called to pull the weeds and plant the flowers. Now, how do we do that practically? Well, we're called to be peacemakers. The weeds of human relationship. As Christians, we should be right at the heart of bringing peace. Shalom, God's peace into communities. God's peace into neighborhoods. We should be at the very heart of managing and maintaining good, healthy relationships. How about you in your neighbourhood? Do you just moan about your neighbours? How about you in your workplace? Do you just moan about what's going on at work? Dreadful non-Christians. You know, I just keep my... I'm I'm a Margot Lidbert. I just keep myself slightly clean. I come into work and I'm all nice and prissy and I'll just come and occasionally I might pick a little weed up. Oh, little weed. Or do you say, no, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get involved in things. Let me tell you a couple of stories of people who got involved in things. A couple of true stories. One I heard of two years ago and one I just heard of this year. Both verified, both true. One is of a young lady called Laura. Now, Laura was an NQT. Do you know what that means? It's a teacher who's just starting out. A teacher who's all the training in college, but really no practical experience in life. And Laura joined the school and Laura found that the classroom was a pretty unhelpful place, full of gossip, backbiting. In fact, that kind of spilled into the whole school. What did I say? Classroom, staff room, thank you. She found the staff room was like at the heart of all this. The staff room where there was gossip and backbiting. And it was kind of typified by one thing. She went to the staff room fridge. She opened the fridge. And instead of there being, you know, milk and sandwiches and bits there, there was post-it notes said, mine, don't touch, you know, I'll kill you if you eat my sandwich, you know, and it was just, to her, it just typified it, it just like, this just typifies the environment that I'm working in. So, what did Laura do? I'll tell you what Laura did, I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she went out the next morning and bought the biggest pint or biggest plastic carton of milk she could find. She put it in the fridge with a big sticker on it saying, free, help yourself. She did the same the next day, the same the next day, the same the next day. Within a couple of weeks, all the other stickers started to disappear. Within a few more weeks, the attitude and atmosphere in the staff room changed for people asking after one another and looking after one another. Within a few more weeks, the attitude of the whole school changed. Don't tell me that you can't be an influencer. Because she, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was called to buy a pint of milk. Surely you can do that. Surely we can listen to God and step out. Now let me tell you one that's a little bit more serious. 
This is a lady I heard interviewed on The One Show, and then she was later premiered on Songs of Praise. Uh, But this is her story. Her name is Mimi Asher, and she's from Brixton in South London, uh, an estate that she lived on was utterly blighted by gang violence. Mimi described her estate as a place that not even the devil would walk because the young people living there were so terrifying. In fact, one gang member was pictured on front of the Sun newspaper brandishing a submachine gun. She, to her dismay, found that her son, Michael, was joining in with this gang. And she decided, and as she saw it started to wreck and spoil his life, she decided that she was going to do something different. So she began to take on the gang, not with violence, but with love. She started to invite the gang members into her home, first of all, just caring for them, feeding them, washing their clothes. She's helped set up a range of activities for them, including things like running a football team, cookery lessons, preparing healthy meals, giving them access to computers and training courses. From there, a remarkable story emerged to an extent that the gang was eventually decommissioned. And as a result of love... Over three years, she helped 60 young people out of that gang and into society, being a useful, helpful member of society. In fact, the young man, pictured with a submachine gun, is now a respected mentor helping other young people out of gangs. The ex-leader of the gang, Carl Loco, is now a successful musician and acts as another mentor helping young people leave the gangs. And the best news of all is that Mimi's son, Michael, became a Christian, and that he now preaches in Mimi's local church. She decided to make a difference. Rather than join the tut-tut brigade that most of us do, she decided to open her home to the gangs. Now, they're two different stories, aren't they? Gangs, bit of unrest in the classroom. Surely your life falls somewhere in between those two. But we are called to pull the weeds up. We're called to make a difference. We're called to be change agents, bringing the shalom, the peace of God, the peace of Christ into everyday life. Now, I believe that actually also spills into the created order as well. It spills into looking after the planet. I think for ages, Christians have despised the environment, and despised efforts to clean up the environment. And actually, one day, God will restore all things. Whenever you pick up a piece of litter, whenever you, as a small group, go and clean up a street or go and clean up some graffiti, you're prophetically ahead of time declaring that one day all things will be restored. And you're bringing a little taste of shalom, a little taste of peace, a little taste of grace into your neighborhood. Point number three, my last point. I've said we're called to bear his image. I've said we're called to cultivate the earth, to pull up the weeds, to be peacemakers. Lastly, we're called to take responsibility. 
you are called to take responsibility. It says the Trinity said right there at the beginning, let them rule. Let them rule. Let them bring the rule of God, the reign of God, the government of God into every aspect of Christian life. Now, we really are kings and priests. We really are called to reign with Jesus. Somebody brought that uh, prophetic word about us being in Christ and being seated with him at the right hand. That's not just a pretty picture, you know. That's not just a nice image. The truth is we really are in Christ. We really are joined to him. And he really is ruling and reigning across all the universe. And in him, you too are called to be an ambassador to bring that rule, to bring that reign into all of life. It's not a pretty picture. It's the truth of who we are in Christ. And you imagine a king hearing about distress, hearing about issues and problems in his land, in his sovereignty, in his kingdom, and saying, oh, well, it it doesn't matter. It won't have any effect on me. Listen, it will have an effect. And kings are called to change things. Kings are called to rule. Kings are called to stand up. Kings are called to make a difference, and bring rule in where you are. Let me give you another example. We're called to be those who redeem, transform, change culture around us. You see, I was brought up in a tut-tut generation that whenever a film came out that was slightly ungodly, slightly seedy, we all tut-tutted and wrote to Mary Whitehouse. And we all said, this is a dreadful thing in our society. And what we we did, we withdrew from society. We withdrew our influence from society and just became those who sat at the back and went, naughty. A few years ago, in the States, a film came out that you may or may not have appreciated, but generally was not appreciated by many people in the States. It was a film of the Da Vinci Code, which is a novel which made some unhelpful aspersions about Jesus. Some people just saw it as a good story. Others saw it as an undermining of their faith. And particularly in America, there was a big boycott of this film. In fact, they called it an other cot because they said, let's, let's not go to the cinema this week and, and, and see Da Vinci Code. Let's go and watch another film instead. It was called an other cot. It was like it, the, the moral majority of America was going to make this mass statement, this mass protest, that all of us, all the Christians were going to uh, avoid this film and this film was going to do dreadful at the box office and it was all going to go down. They recognised in the end when they did their sums that out of the £220 million that that film grossed, probably only £1 million it could have made more if Christians had gone to it. It wasn't exactly a big shout. At the vac- exactly the same time, there were other filmmakers who said this, let's not boycott it, let's make different films. In fact, let's change culture by making some films that are wholesome. And whether you agree with them or not, whether you've appreciated the films that they've made or not, they decided rather than moaning about something, we would make something of sufficient quality that would stand alongside the Da Vinci Code in the box office, and have a good portrayal of Christianity. Two films that came out of that movement. One was The Passion of the Christ. The other was The Revamp of the Lion, the Witch, 
and the wardrobe. Both made by Christians, both heavily influenced by the gospel. Both of those films grossed more than the Da Vinci Code. There was a sense of we're called to change things, we're called to make a difference. Now, you may be a filmmaker here. Make great films. You may not be a filmmaker. You may be more of a Laura in your school. But whatever you are, wherever you are, God is calling you to be a change agent, to be someone who rules and reigns over circumstances. 200 years ago in this country... We still had, or just over 200 years ago, it was still legal to own a slave and for men and women to be in slavery. A great northern MP, William Wilberforce, changed all that. It was a remarkable thing that William Wilberforce did. He did it through many means. He did it through education. He did it through campaigning. But one of the ways that it happened was... He changed the culture and it became unacceptable. It became trendy, if you like, to talk against the slave trade. And what one of the things happened, it happened actually in the north, in the, in the potteries, was that another famous person called Wedgwood, who's famous for his pots and his pottery, joined the campaign. Now Wedgwood could give hundreds of thousands of pounds to the campaign which he did, but also Wilberforce encouraged Wedgwood to use his creative ability to change society. You think, how can making pots change society? How can being creative in the pot-making industry change society? Well, Wedgwood developed a brooch. It was quite an unusual brooch. It was a blue background, typical Wedgwood style. On it was a white figure, which actually wasn't white, was a negroed figure of a man breaking out of slavery with the words under, I am not a slave, I am your brother. Now you think that sounds a bit twee. It became the must-have fashion accessory of its day, worn not just by commoners, but by princes and MPs and all sorts of people wore this badge. And it is reckoned that that badge helped change perspective on slavery as much as everything Wilberforce did in the Houses of Parliament. God wants you to use whatever's in your hand, whatever creative ability you have, God wants you to use. I preached this two weeks ago in my home church in Manchester. I just feel it's something that's really on my heart. And a young lady came up to me at the end. Her name is Rachel Kearney. And Rachel said, Rachel's in the advertising business. And recently a client of Rachel's came up to her showing her some designs for T-shirts, asking her opinion. They were all inspired by tattoos. And of course, as you can imagine, some of them were quite unhelpful. Some of them were risque. But Rachel spotted one of them right in the middle of all this. And it was a tattoo. And this was going to be emblazoned on a T-shirt. It was a tattoo which just said, faith, hope, and love. And Rachel said to this designer, that's the one to use. And she said, why? She said, it's from the Bible. And whenever you use the Bible, it's good news. Use that one. Interestingly enough, that was the one she used on her T-shirts. They became one of the best-selling T-shirts she's ever done, including getting a spread in the Murray Claire magazine 
with a model wearing faith, hope, and love. It's tiny, it's little, but God is using little things to make big changes. And you're very little, you're very small, but you can influence somebody, you can make some change because of who you are in God. Because you're called to rule, because you're called to reign. If you're a musician, God wants you to be writing songs. Damien of Athens, thousands of years ago, said this. Give me the songs of a nation. It doesn't matter who writes its laws. How many laws were changed out of the 1960s when groups sang, all you need is love? Love, love, love's the value. As long as there's love, it doesn't matter. Well, it's a misunderstanding of love, but it changed laws. It changed rules unhelpfully. Where are the songwriters writing truth, writing songs of justice? Where are the poets, the artists, the musicians, the filmmakers, the advertisers? It all matters because God has put us as Christians in every sector, every sphere of society. Sociologists talk about domains in life. And these are the domains that the sociologists talk about. There are eight of them. They talk about the governance domain. Those are in government. They talk about the science and technology domain. They talk about the arts and media domain. They talk about the education domain. They talk about the civil and social domain, which is the domain in your neighbourhood. They talk about the agricultural and water domain. They talk about the medical domain, and they talk about the economic domain. Listen, where's the Christian domain? I'll tell you where it is. It should be in every one of them. We should have people who are equipped in every one of those aspects of society. Now, young people, guys, young kids here, what's God put on your heart to do? You know, when I was a kid growing up, the people always used to ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do they ever ask you that? No? They used to ask me all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, let me ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What, do you, what area of life do you want to go into? What do you want to change for God? When you look around, when you see your televisions, when you read your magazines, when you see what's going on in your street, in your classroom, what do you want to change? You can change it. You can be somebody full of God's spirit. You can be somebody who follows God and uses your God-given gifts to bring the kingdom of God, to bring the rule of God into your life. Mums and dads, grown-ups, what's God given you? What has he put in your hand? What gift, what artistic gift, what educational gift, what social skill? What's he given you? We always talk about gifts And we talk about gifts here in the church. I love this church because it operates biblically. It operates gifts of the Spirit. It operates things like prophecy, words of knowledge, healing, gifts of languages with interpretation. I love that stuff. I love it this morning. But actually, that's just part of the giftedness that God has made and given to you. If that's your gift, exercise it. Great. But other gifts, other things that he's given to you, he wants you to exercise that to make a difference in society. And it can be just as prophetic in the boardroom. You can be just as full of the spirit in the classroom. You can be just as full of wisdom and power and anointing on the train or in your classroom as you can on a Sunday morning. 
When we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, we don't just want two hours of it. We want the whole of life where we're filled with the Spirit, where we're making a difference, where God is calling us. I think if there's a word of God to this church, it's this. He's turning you inside out. He's turning you from a fantastic local church. And don't get me wrong, I boast about you all over the world. You are a fantastic local church. You're a wonderful example of a local church. You're an amazing example of a local church. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying stop being the local church. I'm saying this, be the local church, but be it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as well as Saturday and Sunday. Be it in all of life. Be full of the Spirit, shine for Jesus, and make a difference in the classroom. Be full of the Spirit and make a difference in the boardroom. Be full of the Spirit and make a difference at the school gate. Be full of the Spirit and make a difference in your neighborhood, in your estate. Now, don't ask me how to do it. Ask the Lord. See, it was the Lord who spoke to Laura to buy a pint of milk. I believe it was the Lord who spoke to Wedgwood to give him a design for a brooch. It was the Lord who spoke to Rachel to say, go with that one, faith, hope, and love. That's the one. And she stepped out. And she actually said, if you go with that, God will bless it. That's quite bold. The Lord's doing these things. The Lord is equipping you and giving you faith and giving you life. Now let me end by saying this. I believe with all my heart it's as we build strong local churches that we'll see these things happen. It's only because we build the church strong here. It's only because we're committed here to building with right foundations. It's only because we're building on Jesus and in Jesus. It's only because we're building lives together of community that love one another. It's only because we're doing that that we have any authenticity out there in the world. Because in the end, we need to have something to demonstrate. We need to say to people, come and see what God's doing amongst us. Come and be part of a community. We're not just saying, come and influence a few things out there. We're saying, come and build with us. And it's because you're a strong, good, spirit-filled community that God is entrusting you with this message to go into all the earth, to go wherever you go, and to bring change. And I believe God is using the church And I believe God is using us to make a massive difference in our communities. Let me end by this. In the 1990s, 20 so years ago, Nigel Ring, who was Terry Virgo's administrator, stood on the first Stonely stage in 1991, I think it was, and celebrated that as a movement, we had six works amongst the poor and needy. And it was a great moment, because up to that point, we hadn't really celebrated works amongst the poor. And we celebrated that we had six works amongst the poor. When Jubilee Plus, which is the New Frontiers, a ministry of New Frontiers, which is into social, equipping social action, social enterprise, which is really helping churches to reach out with good news to the poor, social justice. When they did a survey of northern churches, note that word, of northern churches in our grouping, they found that on average, each church that responded had six works amongst the poor. We've gone from a movement where we've got six 
to churches that have got gone six. And I want to end by celebrating what you guys are doing amongst the poor. What you guys are doing with feeding programs. What you guys are doing by reaching out with good advice to those who are less fortunate than you. I want to celebrate that. I want to say, well done. And just recently, this year, in the Houses of Parliament, Baroness Vasi, who is the Minister for Faith, she celebrated, she's a Muslim, but she celebrated what we were doing in New Frontiers, what you're doing in Sheffield. She celebrated that in the Houses of Parliament by taking hold of a report that we had published and saying these words. This is the one big reason why I make a case for faith, she said, holding our document. Because people who do God do good. In other words, very often faith is the basis for good deeds. It influences, it inspires, it impels at every turn. Too often we overlook the practical manifestation of faith in the mother and toddler groups, in school assemblies, in fundraiser days where the 98 million hours that churchgoers spend volunteering each year. For me, said Baroness Vasi, that's the most powerful manifestation of faith, holding our document up. Now, we've got some differences with Baroness Vasi. We've got some differences with many people in the world. But I believe what will demonstrate and what will declare is when they see our good works, they will praise our Father in heaven. Church, we're called to live this stuff out. We're called to demonstrate it. It's part of our apostolic mandate to be the demonstration of the new creation now on planet Earth, ahead of time. One day, all things will be restored. Right now, your school. Right now, your classroom. Right now, your boardroom. Right now, your kitchen table. Right now, your gifting being used for the glory of the Lord. Now, how many times in churches have you heard a call for leadership where we're talking about local eldership or small group leadership or overseeing something? I still believe in all that stuff. But actually, this is a call this morning for you to step up in leadership where you are, for you to step up in influence where you are. As they say at the end of some TV programs, if you've been affected by this message, (laughs) if you've been stirred, if you feel, do you know what, that's me, I'm called to make a difference, I'm called to bring some change, then why don't you stand right now because we want to pray with you. Thank you, Lord. We're just going to pray and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us. We're too big to minister to each other because I think most of us are standing, which is absolutely wonderful. We all want to be change agents. Hallelujah. We're going to respond by worshipping together as we sing a final song. So musicians, if you're not already responding, whether you could be responding in your heart as you come and play your instrument for us. And we're just going to be open again at the end of this meeting to more prophetic words. One of the things I believe in is when we have a word like this, which is shaping, which is apostolic, which is provocative, I believe it's apostolic and prophetic. I believe that the prophets and those who are stirred from God will come and help us and come helpfully into this 
That's no pressure on any one person. It's us being the prophetic community of God. So let's just respond. respond. If it helps you, you might want to raise your hands to just say, here I am, Lord. However you like to respond, just be very natural in the presence of God. Let me pray for you.